So today we're going to begin and cover the book of book the chapter of 33 of Genesis. Uh, last time we left off Jacob uh, had just taken his family and his people and his goods across the river Jabbok and he's left alone. Prior to that he had sent out messengers to uh, see about Esau and to let Esau know that he was in the area and uh, wondered how about heading that way and the messengers come back, uh, oh yes, we found Esau and he's not going to wait for you, him, you to come to him, he's going to come to you, he and about 400 men. So that leads Jacob to some concern and he develops a plan where he divides a, a fairly large gift of animals, puts them in the, in the care of some servants and has them spaced out in groups of threes is his plan or three groups to meet Esau on the road. But in the evening, he takes his whole group across the river Jabbok, which is there east of the Jordan River. And he gets them all across, but he himself is still on the apparently south side of Jabbok. And there he wrestles with the man, according to the scriptures, is the way it's termed, but we know from reading the context that man is really not a man, that is God himself, maybe in the form of even a Christophany, and uh, they are wrestling. And as they wrestle, God touches his hip socket, which then becomes dislocated. And as they wrestle all through the night, morning's coming, and God says, it's about to dawn, let's you know, end this, let me go. And Jacob said he is not going to let go until God blesses him. And so God says, what is your name? And he says, Jacob, which means heel holder or supplanter or deceiver. And God said, well, that's the end of you being called Jacob. You're now going to be Israel, which we'll see in some subsequent chapters. This comes up again. But Israel means one who struggles with God or God's fighter or God prevails. And Jacob turns in, in his own stead and says, God, what is your, he didn't say God, but he says, what is your name? And God said, why are you asking that question? And really doesn't answer it. And Jacob says, you know, earlier, I'm not letting go until you blessed me. So God blessed him. And he named the place, Jacob, Peniel means face of God, saying, I've come face to face with God and survived is the idea there. And he has a permanent limp as a result. And that started a tradition, not a law, not part of God's food laws, but a tradition amongst the generations to follow of not eating the sinnoh of the hip socket because of what had happened here to Jacob. So in the morning, Jacob crosses the river. And that takes us to Genesis 33. So I'd like to just read that chapter. Um, and then we'll talk about what's going on there and so I'm looking for a volunteer to read Genesis 33 the whole chapter 1 through 20 go ahead and Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked and behold Esau was coming and 400 men with him so we divided oh, 33 right yeah, yeah. You're, you're right on so he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants 
And he put the servants with their children in front of Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph, and last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? And Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And at last Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I meet? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt voraciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he argued, uh, thus he urged him and took it. And he took it, excuse me. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord in, the, in Seir. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Sechem, Sechem uh, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Sechem's father, he brought a hundred pieces of money and the pieces of land on which he had pitched his tent. And the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi of Israel. All right, very good, thank you. So really this, this chapter is the encounter of Jacob and Esau and Jacob's first stop with any kind of uh, a permanence or first and second stop with any kind of permanence there uh, as he comes back to the land of Canaan. So first of all, it says, then he lifted his eyes. So here's Jacob on the other side of the river. He looks up and in some level of distance away, he saw Esau is coming and with him, 400 men. And so he had a plan to divide his people up, which he exercised. And so he, he divided the children between Leah and Rachel and the two maids. And he ordered them in the way that they were coming in verse 2. He put the maids and the children of the maids clear out at front. Leah and her children came next. Rachel and Joseph came last. Now, the scriptures do not tell us what was in Jacob's mind at that moment, but we probably could, could make some intuitive, uh, good, possibly correct, and certainly reasonable guesses about that. What do you see about this order? How's he, what's, he, what's he doing here? Why this order? Order of importance to him. Some, is that what you were going to say? Yeah, he, he, he takes the maids and their children first. So he's, he's not considering it zero risk, is he? I mean, these are his children, and clearly he cares for them. We see that throughout, throughout the book. He does occasionally become, and will next week, 
with a couple of them, become extremely exasperated. But nonetheless, he, he uh, is trying to care for his family, but based on who their mothers were, their importance <clears throat> may indeed have varied considerably, or at least enough that when he divided them up, the maids, the not fully wives, I don't know if that's the right way of saying it, but he puts them out in front. So the first of the family that Esau is going to encounter will be the maids. And Leah has lived a life of secondary importance to Rachel throughout all of their married life, comes next with her children. And finally last is Rachel and her one son, Joseph. And so... That, that's where we're at. In verse 3, we see that. Uh, but he passed himself on ahead of them. So he goes out first to make that initial, initial uh, contact. And he bowed to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. Now, bowing to the ground, this was a significant bow. I mean, he is showing deference to Esau... And by putting himself in a lower position than Esau, showing Esau that he puts him in a, in a position of importance or high in the relationship, uh, he is being very, very careful about not coming in and lording himself over, Jake, over uh, Esau. And, um, you know, you can see why Esau might wonder about how that's going to go until he finds out because Jacob left with the blessing that should have gone to the elder Esau in normal circumstances. And so, so ja and, and, Jacob, and Esau is told he's going to be serving Jacob. So there's some question marks about how is this relationship going to go? Do you remember how long Jacob's been gone? 20 about 20 years. So there's been quite a bit of time for questions to develop and situations to potentially become challenging. So uh, as, he, as he comes near Esau, he's elevating Esau, he's, Esau, he's putting himself in a lesser status to the higher status of Esau. But it, verse 4, I think, if we were reading it for the first time, and probably in Jacob's eyes this was a surprise, but Esau ran to meet him and embraced him. And they fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. All of these are words of fondness, of relationship, of uh, friendship, of their fellow brother being brothers. You know, it's, we ought not forget they're twins. Um, and I've been watching some twins grow for about 10 years. And... That is not always a peaceful relationship. Um, but there's always care and concern for each other when things get a little bit uh, difficult for one. So um, they're, they're, it's, it's under there and it's pretty deep. And so what does this come out of? You know, we don't really know what's gone on with Esau in the last 20 years. But clearly when Jacob comes into view and when Jacob is showing... Uh, his deference to Esau, this brings out great emotion and affection. And 
if we ask the question why, I mean, we could have our guesses and maybe some of you would like to express some thoughts. Anybody have any thoughts about why we got here, how we got here in the eyes of these men? That was my insight as well. I really, really don't know. Um, there are many examples in the world around us of men who had frustrations and maybe even the word hatred fit and it just boiled and festered and grew and grew for years. And uh, that could have happened with Esau. He was, in his eyes, greatly taken advantage of and cheated by Jacob and their mother. Um, but for whatever reason, the tension just seems to be gone. And so here, they, here we are in this uh, moment of um, reconciliation, of meeting each other. And then in verse 5, it says that uh, Esau saw the women and children. These obviously would be people that he had never met. And so he asked the obvious question, so who are they? And Jacob said, these are the children that God has graciously given to your servant. And there's two things in that statement that are easy to see. One is Jacob is giving testimony here about his relationship to God. He didn't say, well, this is, you know, these are the, the family that um, I acquired or something like that. No, these are the children that I have because of the grace of God. And so there's a testimony there, but he continues in the language of deference as well, that God has given your servant. And so we see... Jacob there going, you know, this is, this is my family. And so Esau would be taking in the maids and the two wives and, and that Jacob is blessed with a number of sons and we don't know how many daughters, but so here's the children. And so we start this come and see moment there in verse 6 where it says that then the maids came near with their children and they bowed down. And then Leah likewise came near with her children, and they bowed down. And then Joseph came near with Rachel, and they bowed down. So we have the, the formal recognition of each other, and uh, they, they get to be close there in verse 7 and really have a chance to meet each other. And, and then verse 8, obviously we, we can see that Jacob's plan for these three groups of animals as gifts to Esau has been accomplished and so Esau asked the question I um, in verse 8 uh, what do you mean by all the company I've met so what are all these people I'm meeting on the road and Jacob continues with his deferential language um, I to find favor in the sight of my Lord and so when he says my Lord there he's not talking about God he's talking about once again putting Esau in an elevated position these are things so that I might find your favor as an important person that I needed to meet. And so clearly his plan of having these three groups uh, be met by Esau on the road has come to be. And in verse 10, um, uh, I'm sorry, verse 9, Esau says, I've got plenty, my brother, which is a good title for Jacob to hear. I've got plenty, my brother. You keep it. What evidence do we have that Esau indeed did have plenty? Well, 
400 men. People without means don't have a com- aren't accompanied by 400 men to go meet their, meet their twin brother. And um, so we have evidence. The other piece is, uh, why would Esau have brought 400 men? What do you think Jacob thought about hearing Esau was bringing 400 men? Going to be a fight. Does it appear that Esau had in mind a fight? As at least as an aggressor? Well, we don't really know. I mean, did those gifts that he met along the road begin to make him think, give, have a second thought about who Jacob was? We don't know what caused him to reach the point and when it occurred that he became glad to see, see Jacob. Um, but Esau himself, when he heard that Jacob was coming and the servant came, I mean, here's Jacob sending out a servant, right? So he's got servants. And we don't know what other kinds of information may have been given to Esau at that time. Esau may have asked questions. Where are you at? What's... For whatever reason, he told the servant, I'm coming and I'm bringing 400 men. That may have been a defensive move move on Esau's part. We really don't know. I mean, his past interaction with Jacob, the high points included a moment of weakness where Esau was coerced into trading a bowl of soup for his birthright, as well as a time when Jacob and their mother conspired together and tricked Esau out of the blessing of the father that would normally go to the firstborn. And it obviously was known that Esau, his comforting thought after it was all over was, well, dad won't be around too much longer. When he's gone, I'm going to kill Jacob. So if Jacob knew that, and here he's coming back to Canaan, Esau may have wondered if Jacob was coming with the intent of forcefully being the dominant brother. We don't really know. But here they are, and Esau now says, I have plenty, you keep your gift, or gifts, Verse 10, Jacob said, no, please, if I found favor, take my gift. And it's interesting, he says, for I see your face as one sees the face of God. Sees God. And what, so what's he saying here? What's his comment? What does that mean when he says, to, I, see e, I see you as one who sees the face of God? Great respect. Great respect. Okay. Okay. Some fear. Maybe God has changed You know, I think I think there's some um, certainty that Jacob is feeling that way, or at least believes God has been at work. Let's go back to the last chapter and read verse eleven again. Chapter thirty-two, verse eleven. Jacob spends some time in prayer with God, and this is out of the middle of a prayer where Jacob recognizes who God is and the heritage that goes along with the relationship with Abraham and Isaac and now him. 
And, and this is his request in the middle of that prayer. Somebody read verse 11. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. So Jacob pleads to God, asks God, whatever the right word there is, to take care of this fear he has with regard to what Esau may be coming to do. And so that was just very recent when he was sending the gifts out and putting them together. It was right after that. And so here is Jacob realizing this prayer has been answered right in front of his eyes. And in verse 11, he continues to say, Please take my gift. I brought it to you because God has been gracious to me. And so this is a piece of Jacob's testimony about what God has done for him. And he says, Jacob says, I have plenty. He continued to urge him, and Esau then took it. And so here is Jacob having given uh, his testimony and given his gift to Esau, and Esau has accepted it. And so the reconciliation has occurred. Here they are where they met. Um, they have agreed upon the gifts going to Esau, and it's kind of, okay, and now what moment? We're all standing around, and what's going to happen next? And Esau says, let us begin our journey, and, and I will go before you. And where does Esau think they're going? Where would you expect that he thinks they're going? Doesn't really say, does it? But... Um, it would seem likely that Esau is thinking, well, you don't have a place. I have a place. We'll, we'll go to my place. And so, you know, let's put our groups together. We'll make a good journey of this. Uh, but Jacob's not having any of that. In verse 13, he says, My Lord knows that the children are frail and the flocks and herds which are nursing are a care to me, and if they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Well, that might have been a little bit of an exaggeration, but there is some truth in it. I'm not real knowledgeable on the days of the cattle drives. I know a little bit about it, but I know they expected when they got to their destination that their cattle were typically going to weigh noticeably less than they did when they left. The cattle drives took something out of it, and I know when what little bit of cattle farming I was around that uh, you, you paid attention particularly when there were calves involved on how fast you moved them and how hard you moved them but here's Jacob saying not only say but Jacob is here recognizing that and saying I've got children I've got animals we've got young ones of both so to speak and it's not going to be workable for me to move at the pace that you and your 400 men would would like to move and so this is a care and a concern to me and so i'm going to need to make my own pace reminds me a little bit that when our kids were very small three and one i think was our first trip to canada we all went in one car with my parents that was the last time we did that uh, we needed to move at a different pace than 
than the kids as grandparents wanted to go. And honestly, in that time, even though my parents are not a lot older than I am, um, even then I was starting to say, they've slowed down some. They don't go at the pace they used to, but they still went at a pace that didn't work for little ones. And they didn't know what it was like to have to think about when to ignore the crying, when to do something about the crying, how to plan for stops so that everybody had a chance to exercise a little bit. There were just a lot of things that went into that that we agreed that we would meet at the same place at the same time on the other end of the trip. But we didn't take the same pass. Well, that's a little bit what he's saying here. I, I can't go at your pace. It's not going to work. So he basically says in verse 14, he says, um, Pat, please let my Lord pass on before his servant, meaning you, Esau, you go ahead and go first, and I will proceed at my own leisure behind you according to the pace of the cattle that are before me and according to the pace of the children until I come to my Lord at Seir. So what's important about Seir? Do you remember from before? Why did he mention Seir? Stretching your imagination, your imagination, your remembrance. That's where Esau lived, was in Seir. And so Jacob says, you go on, I'll see you, when you, I'll see you at your home later. You're going to be moving much faster than me. And so we could look ahead and realize this is not to be. We don't know right now what Jacob's intention may have been. Maybe he thought he would go to Seir. We don't really know, but he does not make it to Seir. Uh, this, this is not going to be his plan. Maybe he's dipping back into his previous days and a little bit of deception there. I just don't know. In verse 15, Esau said, Well, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. So he's got these 400 men, and Esau is saying to Jacob, let me leave some of these people with you. Now, why would he do that? There's two possibilities that stand out. There may be others. But one is, eh, you know, I'll kind of leave my people here, and they'll make sure this all works out like it should, and they'll be there to help you know which path to take and make sure you stay on it and that kind of a thing. Why else might he have wanted to leave some of those men or maybe even all of them? Absolutely. This is not necessarily, it's not always safe to be traveling around with a lot of goods. And so these men might have been there to help help be a, a, a good escort to help them stay safe on their journey. And maybe even know where the water holes are and some of those kinds of things. Now, Jacob wasn't a young man when he left Canaan, so he should have known some of that for himself. Jacob has an answer. Well, what is the need here? Why, why would I do that? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. And so basically saying, leave me on my own. I, I, that's where I need to be. Honor me. is another, He could have said, honor me with letting me manage this myself. You take your men and go, and we'll, we'll handle it just fine. So in verse 17, Jacob, it says, went on to Succoth to build a house, and he made booze for his livestock. This is east of the Jordan, not far from the fort of Jabbok. So he doesn't go a long ways 
before he stops and builds himself a house. And this booze for his livestock could have been a lot of things. Uh, that word could be used for a tabernacle or tent. It could also be used for some kind of crude or temporary shelter. So he set himself up some shelter for his livestock so that they could get out of the sun, get out of the wind, get out of the rain, whatever it might be. And uh, then um, we, we see that it's named Succoth, and there's really nothing I found. I'm not saying it's not there, but I sure didn't find it about the, that town. It's, it looks like Jacob named it. It's a proper name with no real particular meaning that I ran across. So uh, that's where Jacob comes to rest. There is at Succoth, and, and he stops there, but apparently doesn't stay a long time. Uh, because we wind up in verse 18, where Jacob moves on to Shechem. And it says, Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padaram and camped before the city. So he gets up in the area of Shechem and pitches, uh, sets up his camp. I don't want to say pitches a tent, but whatever means they were using for shelter, probably tents, uh, that's where he is. And they're in the land of Canaan. He had to cross the Jordan to wind up there to get there from Padaram, and he's there camping by the city. And uh, we're going to spend a little time with uh, Shechem here in a minute. But when he's there, he bought a piece of land in the same area where his camp was set up from the sons of Hamor. Uh, Shechem's father person at that time. Uh, Shechem is there. We'll, we'll see more of that next time. But he stops and he makes this deal for the land. And he pays 100 pieces of money to Hamor, the prince of the city. And so let's go back. We've run across this before. I want to go first of all back to Genesis 12, 4 through 9. Genesis 12, 4 through 9. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Aram. And Abram took Sarah's wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Iran and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the, the land to the place at Shechem to the oak of Morah. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar of the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Okay. So this is the, the in, in terms of um, Abraham and his offspring, this is the first time we hear of Shechem. So what, what, what general period are we in? What, what is Abraham doing, Abram at the time, 
when he goes to Shechem. What has he just done? What's just happened? He's just left his home country. He's just left his home country, country at the command of God. And so he travels away from where Jacob has just come from, that area, and finds himself uh, at Shechem and eventually, and it depends on your translation, but the Oaks of Mamre or whatever, that's where Abraham sets up his camp. So this was a stopping point for Abraham or Abram at the time. Now go over to Genesis 23, 17 through 20. Genesis 23, 17 through 20. <clears throat> Who's got that for us? So Ephraim's field, which was in Mechpelah, which faced Mamre, the field and cave which was in it, and all the trees which were in the field, that were within all the confines at its border, were deeded over to Abraham for possession, in the presence of the son of Heth, before all who went in at the city, at the gate of his city. After this, so 20? Yes. After this, Abram buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave at the, at the field of at Mechpelah, facing Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were at, deeded over to Abraham for a burial site by the sons of Heth. Okay, so what's happening here? What's the event that starts this passage? Sarah's death. Sarah died. So what does Abraham do? He buys this field. He buys this field from the Hittites. From the Hittites. And what's the key characteristic of the field with regard that has to do with Sarah's death? <clears throat> it's got a cave in it. And he's going to use this cave as a burial site for Sarah. And so he meets with these men, and it's an interesting negotiation. We had fun with that when we went through the went through it, the typical negotiation style for the time. But Abraham purchases this ground. And Abraham stayed at a lot of places. And he had a fairly good-sized footprint. He had enough of an army or enough men that he could put together an army to go rescue Lot, if you remember. So he's not a small player by any stretch. But in terms of what's recorded in the New Testament, this is his only purchase of land. So wherever else he stayed, he was there because there was room. I mean, the world wasn't nearly as populated. There were places to go and places to stay. He had agreements with people in the area. It wasn't that he was a squatter like somebody coming in and taking over land that didn't belong to them without the cooperation or, or consent of the people who owned it. But, but this is his one purchase that's recorded in the scriptures. And while we may not be in Shechem proper, we're not far away. It's in the same general area. 
And uh, so now we have Jacob coming to this area, and he also purchases ground in the area of Shechem. And as far as I can tell, I know that up to this point, it's, this is the only other purchase of land that's recorded that occurred within Abraham and his offspring uh, in the book of Genesis. And as far as I could tell, this will be the only two pieces of ground in the promised land that they actually purchase. The rest will all be acquired through mutual consent, so to speak, with the people that owned it, but truly acquired when God leads them back as a people in the book of Exodus, and they didn't purchase land then either, obviously, for obvious reasons. Um, but this isn't the, the end of a discussion about Shechem um, in the Old Testament story by any stretch. Uh, let's go over to Joshua, chapter 24, verse 32. Now there's a lot that's gone on by the time we get to Joshua. So what was Joshua's role in the whole story of Abraham, his offspring, and the promised land. What was his role? He's leading Israel, the nation of Israel, a big nation now, back into the land of Canaan. And so lots of years have gone by. Israel, by the time Joshua is involved, his first involvement it was as a spy. Well, they were in how long were they in Egypt as slaves? 400 years. That's where we leave them. We'll be leaving them off at the end of Genesis. And then we have the trek through the desert as Moses leads them out at God's direction. And then we first hear about Joshua, as far as I know. I haven't looked to make sure there's no other ones. But what's Joshua's first big role when they get to the land of Canaan? One He's one of the spies. And if you recall, one of the stories we've often heard in Sunday school as kids, you, how many spies did they send in? Twelve. How many of them came back and said, yeah, let's go? Two. Joshua was one. Was God pleased? No. Read the book of Hebrews. They talk about it quite a bit there too. And so God was not pleased. So what was God's answer to a 10 to 2 vote on whether or not they could even think about going into the promised land. 40 years in the wilderness. So we have 400 years in Egypt after the end of the book of Genesis. We have whatever time it took for them to get to the promised land. And then we've got another 40 years wandering around the desert outside the promised land. And then Joshua goes in as the leader of the group that took the promised land by force and carried out God's judgment on the land of Canaan. And then we get to this verse. So let's read Joshua 24:32. Who's got that? And Joseph's bones which the Israelites had brought up from Egypt were buried at Shechem in the tract of the land that Jacob bought for a hundred pieces of silver 
from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. This became the inheritance of Joseph's descendants. Okay. So we now have Joseph's bones that were brought back at his request to be deposited in the land of Canaan when the right time occurred. And where are they buried? In the very piece of ground that we see Jacob buying right, right here. Um, one more. John 4, 1 through 12. John 4, 1 through 12. Who has that? Is it John 4, 1 through 12? I think so. Sure. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, uh, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Her Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as, as did his sons and his livestock. So, where are we? Samaria. What? Samaria. We're in Samaria. Jacob's well. Jacob's well, which was near what? Shechem. Shechem. As a matter of fact, we believe that Sychar was the modern, modern, modern in Jesus' day, name for Shechem. And we're near the land, didn't it say that? Near the land that was that Jacob gave to his descendants, which is the land he bought in the passage we're looking at. So this piece of property that they bought doesn't become lost to obscurity even during the even as a result of the time that they spent in Egypt as slaves. They come back, they know which piece of ground it is, they continue to use it, and even up until the time of Jesus, it's known as the ground that Jacob gave to his descendants. And it's whose well? Jacob's. And who drank there? Jacob, according to her. And I'm not saying according to her because I don't think it's right. This is a well that Jacob put down while he was there. And the well he used and a well he actually drew water from that's in the account of what we call the Samaritan woman, which I didn't know that till I was preparing this message and, or this teaching this morning, and I thought that was at least very interesting to me. Any thoughts or comments so far? Okay, so what's that? Uh, I just, 
take us while Jacob led him to the promised land all of a sudden all his property was in Samaria Samaria uh -huh. where the Jews don't particularly care for this yeah that illustrates and really not necessarily a part of this lesson but it does illustrate something when God started with Abraham and he said I'm going to give you this land how did he tell Abraham to know what the land was do you remember we could turn back to it but it would take me a while to put my eyes on the right verse verse says what did Abraham tell God to do I'm sorry reverse that what did God tell Abraham to do in the passage where, he, what's that? Look all around yes. Look. Everything you see is going to be for you and your descendants. And then he didn't stop there. He says, oh, by the way, travel the breadth of the land from north to south, east to west. It's going to be yours. So by the time we get to Jesus, that promise has been not taken good care of by the Jews. I mean, judgment of God has come. They have not obeyed God. Lots of things have come together so that this land that God gave them wasn't wholly under their control. And you had the, the north and the south kingdom. And in the area of Samaria, many Jews had married Gentiles. And that didn't please, didn't set with the Jews in the southern kingdom who considered themselves more religious, they had Jerusalem as well, more pure, and a few other things. And so the Samaritans were greatly looked down upon and not cared for. And yet it was in Samaria that this land that Jacob bought existed. But we have to remember that God's intention for the land was not just the southern part of the two kingdoms, that grew out of the descent after Solomon died between, between the northern and southern Jewish people, between the various tribes. God intended that all to, be, all to be one. And I believe in the days to come, well, right now it is. The land that was Samaria is a part of modern-day Israel, but I think they will get that dominion and will keep it and will grow it to the full intention of what God expected or promised. Good, good comment. Anything else? A lot of interesting things are going on as these foundations are laid for the days to come that, uh, that we'll see during the rest of the book of Genesis as well as beyond if we were to keep going. So in verse 20, then, he's bought this property, and there he erected an altar and called it El... Elohe Israel and that really means mighty God with Israel really starts to sound like Jacob as a nation that's when we first see Israel coming now as I told you before we're going to have another encounter where God says your name's not Jacob anymore it's Israel don't know why that was needed or a part of God's plan but he did do that and by the way, from the passage we read earlier, this is where Abraham, the general area, not the same exact square foot of ground, but this is the same general area where Abraham built his first altar in the promised land. And so we get to see Jacob 
mimicking, that's probably the wrong word, but living out the same pattern. Uh, don't know if it was in his in, intent or just the way it worked out, but he's winding up at Shechem where Abraham spent a fair amount of time and is doing some similar things to what Abraham did, including even the purchase of a piece of ground. Not for the same purpose, but it turned out to be a burial site before it was all said and done. Questions, comments? I knew we would end a little early today. If you uh, took a look ahead to what's coming in chapter 34, there is no way I could get started into 34 and do anything with it. So I decided it's just going to have to work out however it works out today. And we'll see if we can get all of 34 or it not. I don't know that I'll even try, but we very well might get all of 34 next time, which is another one of those accounts that I just as soon skip over. But it's in the scriptures. It did happen. Moses recorded it. And uh, it does show a little bit about who these sons of Jacob, at least a couple of them, are growing up to be. And uh, once again, God's words later in the scriptures about picking Israel, not because they were the greater, the best, but picking them because they were small and the worst in some respects. That's not the way God said it, but that's kind of how it works out. Uh, God did that so that he would be glorified, not that they would. So let me close with a word of prayer. Father, we are encouraged by what we see in the Old Testament about how you worked with people who were sinful and um, like us in so many ways, that you worked with them to establish your kingdom and lay the foundation for Jesus uh, to come and to take upon himself the sins of the world and actually carry our sins as followers of Christ to the cross and suffer in our place. Uh, Lord, we, we get to see these people with some of their their warts and some of their problems as well as some of the ways that they responded well to you. Lord, we pray as we uh, leave today that we will recognize that uh, Jacob clearly saw what had happened to him that was positive in his eyes was by your grace. And Lord, we live by your grace too. Sometimes we're very mindful of it and sometimes we're not. Lord, make us mindful of how your grace is what takes us through this life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.